welcome back everyone to the Real Estate Home Runs podcast. We have a special guest today, Justin Brito. Justin, thanks for joining us. Oh yeah, thank you, man. I appreciate you having me on. This is my first podcast. I've listened to a lot of podcasts in the past in real estate, so it's an honor to be. I appreciate your time. So thank you. No problem. It's, it's going to be good. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So before we get into today's topic, talking about underwriting, would you mind giving us an introduction about you, how you got started in real estate? Yeah, absolutely. So just a quick background. I was born in Phoenix, Arizona. It's come a long way in the last 10 years and it's a really hot real estate market. So I feel pretty lucky to have been born here. I know the, area, I know the city very well. I ended up going to Arizona State University for my bachelor's degree. I knew I wanted to be in real estate since I was probably in my teens. My family comes from a blue collar background. So my dad owned a construction company. My brother is in construction, my uncle. So I did that for a little bit, realized I'm not like, I don't like manual. So I decided to be the first one in my family to go to college. I think what really sparks my interest in real estate was reading the Robert Kiyosaki, Rich Dad, Poor Dad book. I think I read that probably in my early twenties. And so I knew I wanted to be in real estate. I wasn't really sure what part of real estate exactly. That book talks a lot about single family investments. So I started off with single family, started a business with my dad. We bought our first house. 2006, we were doing a huge upgrade and then the market crashed. So we ended up losing that house, unfortunately. And so I was a little bit trying to figure out what my next move was. And I was looking on ASU's website for degrees. I always thought I wanted to do a business degree. And I saw they offered a degree in real estate. And so I did some research on that and ended up applying to get the degree in real estate from ASU. So I got really lucky that I found that. I talked about the degree wasn't just like selling real estate or single family housing. It was it was all aspects of real estate. It covered single family, covered covered investing in apartment buildings, retail, office, etc. Taught a little bit about underwriting. And we did a project at the end to kind of business what we want to do in real estate. And so I decided to choose apartments. People always need a place to live. I like apartments. There's a lot of transactional velocity in apartments. It's always a good investment in my eyes. I did a project on a value add building in Tempe near ASU. And th that's when I decided that's what I want to do, apartment buildings. I don't know how good the actual project came out. I don't remember. I know it was my first project in underwriting and stuff, but it definitely laid the foundation for what I want to do in the future. So I ended up graduating ASU. I was at school during the actual financial crisis of 2008, uh, the great great recession, I got a uh, recession. And so I got to see that firsthand, had one of my professors explain what was going on. And so I got good knowledge of what happened. And so when I graduated, it was 2010, obviously we were in a recession. So not a lot of real estate companies were hiring. I ended up asking my professor for a recommendation on what to do in terms of reaching out to people and real estate companies like executives and setting meetings. I did that for a couple months and met a lot of people. And then I ended up getting a job at Marcus and Millichap, the large brokerage firm. And so I started off there making like 10 bucks an hour part-time 
And that was actually a really good job because I was researching property ownership for brokers, mm -hmm. putting it on a spreadsheet and so they can call them. I didn't realize it at the time, but that was a great skill to have, to learn how to yeah. find these property owners, what websites to use, how to check their LLC. And if they're owned it with an LLC, who's the owner of that LLC or the manager and get their contact info through like LexisNexis. It was a tedious project, but a very beneficial project. So I wasn't afraid to get my hands dirty and I just took whatever I could. And eventually after six months of doing that, I was able to land a full-time job as working in the research, writing research reports and like the apartment market, the office market, retail across the nation. So I got to dive into the economics of what's driving real estate, understanding submarkets, pipe construction pipelines, and writing reports for brokers as well as for a CEO, because our CEO goes a lot on CNBC and he's on all these, these shows and he'll use these research reports as data points. So that was actually a really good experience too. And the funny thing there is I didn't pay a lot of attention in English 101, 102 in college because I knew I, I <laughs> that was like the last thing I wanted to do Yeah, <laughs> a writer. So I had a huge learning curve on how to write properly when I got that job. And I would stay after work. I would work late to figure out how to create the best product for our agents. Did a lot of research. It helped me with research. So yeah, that was an awesome job. Obviously there was a ceiling on the pay. It wasn't even as the economy grew, started to bounce back. They weren't going to pay what I wanted to make. So I started moonlighting for a broker in our company and he's one of the top brokers in our company. He's been there for 30 years and he was doing large institutional deals, $30 million and above. And so I was moonlighting for him because he wanted me to help with the broker opinion of values and offering memorandums, like writing the text in the back. So when I look back and connect the dots, all these things just lined up. Like I took this job writing research reports and learning how to do research and learning how to write stuff properly. And then I start moonlighting because I forced myself how to write. I start moonlighting for this guy for his marketing materials. And after a couple months of doing that, he decided to hire me full time. And so now I landed on the brokerage team in 2012, a top brokerage team that institutional. We deal with the largest property real estate or real estate investors in the world from Blackstone, Goldman Sachs, okay. Starwood to, to the REITs, to just the pension funds, international capital. So just to sum it up real quick with him, I started off doing like the marketing materials, the investment broker opinion and values, the offering memorandums, the market surveys, all the market research. I did the marketing for when we actually got a deal, I would put it on the marketing thing called RCM, Real Capital Market. And that sends out an email blast to our buyer list. And I learned everything I could starting at the bottom. And I, all, my goal was always to be able to underwrite deals. And we have our senior financial analyst, who's the second in charge on our team. And I kept bugging him to teach me the underwriting. And they kept pushing me off, pushing me off. So I, I just took it in my own hands and I started to study the financial model because we have a pretty in-depth financial model. I started learning mm -hmm. the formulas. I stayed after work, worked late, and just basically taught myself how the financial model works. And then eventually I started looking at operating statements of properties and rent rolls to figure out how to analyze those and mm -hmm. plug it into the financial model so you can create a 10-year pro forma. Yeah. And so I just kept bugging them and they kept saying no. And they hired other people ahead of me to take the junior financial analyst position. It was tough when they hired people ahead of me, but 
I just kept pushing and kept pushing and mm -hmm. those people didn't work out. And I finally got to slide in as a financial analyst probably three years ago. So now I underwrite all our deals and it's awesome. I love the underwriting aspect. To me, that's just great, great skill to have. So I'm obviously, I'm still learning. I'm like not a master at it, but I'm definitely dangerous enough to be dangerous and to analyze deals and figure out what we can do with the deal. So. Mm -hmm. And like you said, those are skills that you can pretty much apply to any area on the writing for a single family, for yeah, absolutely. multifamily. Absolutely. The, absolutely. Those same principles that you would apply to 20 units could be applied to 80. Well, I, I mean, we use it to, to underwrite $30 million deals up to $150 million deals, but I uh -huh. use it even to underwrite a four unit deal. Because it's just now I know how to use it really quick. So I can plug in all the data real quick and it spits out all my returns and stuff. So the thing with real estate invest, like commercial real estate investing or real estate investing in general is like people know how to do a lot of things, but there's not like I don't come across a lot of people that know how to underwrite deals properly. Mm -hmm. So that's just yeah. like for me to have that skill and being a part of, we've brokered probably $15 billion in real estate since I've been on the team. We're doing a billion dollar portfolio right now. And then another $800 million portfolio that we're mm -hmm. selling. So I, I have this institutional background in underwriting as well as how these investors underwrite deals. I learned how they buy deals, how they sell mm -hmm. deals. I'm on, the con I'm on conference calls with them, um, listening to their thoughts. And I just get a behind the scenes look of how people, how these institutions manage their real estate. So mm -hmm. it's, that's, that's good. Not very many people get that opportunity. So. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm sure if someone were to approach you now, and, and let's say you didn't have the knowledge that you have now, but knew the end goal for $10, like, yeah, teach me. I'll, yeah. I'll work for you for $10 an hour. Absolutely. A lot of people go to these syndication groups and they mm -hmm. learn this stuff on the fly and they pay a lot of money to do it. Or I'm getting paid to get basically a master's degree in real estate. Mm -hmm. So I'm learning on the job and getting paid and learning from one of the best brokers, in my opinion, at the planet. So, mm -hmm. so when did that mindset shift happen for you that you were like, this that I'm learning is really good, but how can I apply this to my own portfolio or to grow my own real estate business? Yeah, there's always fear involved. Try something new. So I was seeing all of our clients do really well in real estate. I, I was seeing what they did. So I had the knowledge of what people were doing at the highest level, which I can take that down to a smaller level that, that I'm on. I'm a newbie. To, in my, to me, I'm still a newbie, but I just realized you don't have to be the smartest person in the world to invest in real estate. You just have to have certain skills and apply those skills and actually take the risk and do my due diligence, make sure I can mitigate that risk as much as possible. And I'm trying to learn more and more, reading books on mindset, how to be relentless and persevere. And finally, I just said, okay, no more analysis. I'm having analysis paralysis. I just need to take the plunge. And decided to do that in 2015. I bought a four unit, which obviously is a really small deal, but to me, it was a huge deal. Mm -hmm. Like I remember there was yeah. a broker in our office and he had the four unit deal and I was so mesmerized. I'm like, man, that's so cool. This was in 2012 and that was such a big deal to me, but I found this four unit deal off market because I was cold calling on property owners and I got this guy and he's like, yeah, I'll sell. And so I drove by the deal and it was the perfect deal. It was the ugliest deal on the block because mm -hmm. I like value add stuff, but the layout, the structure was really nice and it was in a really good area. Like 
one of my plan, one of part of my business plan is to buy a class A and class B areas. And this was in a class A area, a really good school district. And so that's good. I was able to house hack. I did like an FHA loan, put I think 5% down and moved into one of the units. And I think I paid like 280,000 for that fourplex. I put in probably another hundred grand over the next two years to fix all the units up. And at that part, there was fear there as well, because I was putting in all this money and rents at the time weren't necessarily justifying the money I was putting into the property. Mm -hmm. So I was taking a huge risk in my eyes, but eventually it paid off because the rents when I bought it were 500 bucks. Once I fixed up the units, I think I got them up to 800 bucks and then the market just kind of took off and now they're at 1300. Yeah. There's obviously, there's a lot of luck in real estate. I can do Mm -hmm. my due diligence. I can take my assumptions, grow rents by 3%, expenses by 2%, but I don't know exactly where rents are going to go. In this case, Mm -hmm. they went up a lot higher than 3%. And I ended up selling that deal in 2019 off market to a California investor for all cash. And I think he paid me 730,000. So that was on that deal. My first deal, I think a three multiple I I made on that deal. Yeah, Um, that's impressive. I was like, wow, I love real estate. (laughs) I want to do that again. But the unfortunate thing is, is I didn't keep buying. I didn't have the platform in place like I do now. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't have partners. I didn't have any equity investor, didn't have relationships with like local banks. And then the market was starting to heat up and there's still fear from the last financial crisis because we were still only five or six years. Is that the reason why you decided to sell? No, I wanted to sell because my mindset was to go bigger. So I wanted to seed capital to have liquidity to buy bigger. I should have 1031, but again, in 2019, everyone was, prices are way elevated. And I I just kept listening to people and reading articles saying Mm -hmm. the market was over, it was inflated again. So I didn't necessarily capitalize on that. And I wish I would have had a better platform in place in Mm -hmm. the early days, but I guess it happens when it's supposed to happen. And also it was a learning experience and you came out of it with, a nice profit. It's very, a win-win for everybody, you and the buyer. Very, uh, very grateful because now they I mean, really that buyer, So mm-hmm. that that property he bought it for seven thirty. I mean, prices have accelerated again in Phoenix, mm-hmm. so it's probably worth nine hundred now, maybe more. So yeah. and he bought it in 2019, but I, right. at the time it was a record-breaking price for the area, for the neighborhood. What would you say is underwriting in the simplest form and what does it look like when we focus on the details? I know you mentioned rent roll, evaluating the pro forma and the cash coming in and expenses, making sure that you have the room to increase the rent. Yeah. So, so I'll use an example for my job. I underwrite institutional larger deal. We request pretty good amount of data. So we do student, which basically leases by the bed versus the unit. And it's these large buildings next to universities. They're basically like hotels or resorts for students. And so if it's a two bedroom unit, then you have bedroom A and you got bedroom B. So if one student leases bedroom A, they're only on the hook for that bedroom. And it doesn't matter if bedroom B, if they sign a lease and take off, bedroom A doesn't have to pay for that. So you get more income that way. You can get a higher per unit rent since you're doing it by the bed but it's still cheaper for the student versus renting the a whole unit. So bedroom A could rent for, let's say 700 bucks versus if they had to rent the whole unit at 1200 bucks, but then they get all these great amenities. It's insane. It's like, 
Mm -hmm. the resort pools they have these tvs by the pool like 100 foot tvs out there they got tanning beds they got game rooms it's crazy but anyway so we request you know rent roll a pre-leasing rent roll which means they're pre-leasing these beds throughout the school mm -hmm. year for next year so right now they're pre-leasing beds for the 21 22 school year which usually mm -hmm. starts around august so we'll request a pre-leasing rent roll operating statement or t12 a current one and then historical ones for like say 2020 2019 2018 tax bills, concession report, payroll, any contracts the property has, what else? Maybe a budget if they have a budget. And then I go in and I will start analyzing the rent roll, see where it's occupied at. I'll see what the current rents are that they're actually achieving right now. Then I'll have to break that down and create a pivot to find the actual unit mix. If it's some data is different for every company. Some of them have a unit statistics report at the bottom, which kind of summarizes what the unit mix is, what the rents are, and some don't. So then you got to go in and break it down, create a pivot table. So then you got to see what the unit mix is, plug that into the financial model. And then on our deals, I look at the pre-leasing report to see what rents I plug in for market rents for the upcoming school year, because we're going to have a start date on the model that coincides right now with the actual school year of August, 2021. So I'll look at the market rents on the pre-leasing rent roll, plug that into my model, and then I'll look at the lease, what they're actually signed at. So let's say they're advertising bedroom A for $700 a bed, but they actually are signing some students at $650. So that's the least rent. And so now I have a loss to lease on that unit of $50. And it that can be multiplied times however many units are there. That, that yeah, can add just, up pretty quickly. Yeah. So now I figure out what the signed rent is, and then I come up with my GPR the gross potential rent of that property. So it's going to be all rent, all mark, all units at market rent, and then minus the loss to lease. And then that's my GPR. That's the first thing I do. The second thing I do is I set up the year one pro forma. So I'll look at the current T12 and look at the, all the different line items, study it, come up with underwriting questions. If there's something that looks out of whack or maybe income for a certain line item starts, there's no income for three months and then it starts in the fourth month. Okay, so the property just start charging this income for this line item and is it going to be in perpetuity? And so I can annualize that out and make sure I'm capturing the right income for that. Then understanding expenses, controllable versus non-controllable and looking at the trends on expenses. One of the biggest line items that is hard to really pin down is going to be taxes. Taxes in Phoenix and Maricopa County are pretty easy because the value is already set. And then, so if you buy the property, the full market value doesn't change. The limited assessed value doesn't change. You just grow taxes by 5%. But if you go to a different city, let's say somewhere in Austin, Texas, looking at a property or selling it for 60 million bucks, the current seller maybe bought it for 40 million bucks. So taxes right now currently are based on that $40 million price that they pay because taxes get adjusted. So now if we sell this at 60 million, what will the market value adjust to based on the sales price or however the assessor does it? So I got to call the assessor, how they calculate taxes, what they use, sales approach, income approach. Do they adjust the market value to a certain percentage of the sales price? So there's so many different, almost every city or county does it differently. And understanding that's extremely important. And then I'll do a tax analysis where I'll find properties that sold on the previous 
three years that are similar to the subject property. And I'll look at the sales price and then figure out what the market value is that it was adjusted to and figure out that percentage. And I'll do a, a sample size of hopefully at least five. So I can see what's the average market value that these taxes were adjusted to. Yeah. So you can pretty much see what it was before yeah. and what the current taxes are. Yeah, huh. correct. And okay. so I'm, I didn't know you like, could go that far back. Yeah, there's a lot of detail involved. And that's important because like, uh, let's, yeah. let's say the subject property is paying 500000 now in taxes, and then you sell it for $60 million, So the market value for taxes gets adjusted upwards. It used to be 80% most in Texas, 80% market value. It was adjusted the sales price. It's gone up quite a bit. I've seen it at 100%, 90%. I've seen it above 100%. But that can take that tax number of whatever, 600000 and that can raise it to three, four hundred thousand dollars. That's a huge hit if you're not adjusting for taxes post sale. Taxes is one of the hardest things to really nail down. There's always debate with buyers on taxes, but we're assuming based off the assessor and, and our market knowledge of doing the research that we're coming up with the right taxes. The other line item that has been actually going up big time has been insurance. That's something obviously we can't forecast or really do a lot of research or come up with the correct number. We got to go with what the seller says, but the buyer will obviously get their own quote, but I've seen taxes double and even triple on a, like a lot of deals this year. And I think that's a lot to do with some of the fires in California and just natural disasters going on that people are filing insurance claims and everyone gets penalized for. That makes sense. So those are the two big things. And then understanding properties, electrics included in the rent, or it's billed back to tenants. So there's an electric expense for the units. There's water, sewer, trash, understanding the expenses, and then the contract services. And basically getting granular with the underwriting and understanding what we can do over a 10-year pro forma to cut expenses wherever they're running fat and to increase income where the property is not collecting income based on what we think the property should be collecting because we've underwrote so many deals, we have that knowledge. But maybe the management company is just not properly managing the property. There's underwriting, there's an art and a science to it. The science is studying the financials, the historicals, and seeing how the property's performed. The art to me is projecting what we think the property can do over the next 10 years on an NOI basis. I'm really glad we're going over this in the podcast because I'm underwriting is very important and it can either make or break a deal yeah. how that goes so you gotta know you have to know your underwriting and do your due diligence to understand whether yes something is worth pursuing or not yeah yeah i knew early on that that was a skill that everyone would need me for so when i raise capital and underwrite the deals and no one else knows how to underwrite them it's put me in a really good position <clears throat> have you seen any common mistakes that some people make when they're underwriting deals or or things that you have even been become more aware of recently? Yes. I know you mentioned the taxes and insurance. Is there anything else like that? It's, I guess, coming up with the right assumptions in terms of rent growth. For us, there is benchmarks, industry benchmarks for rent growth, repairs and maintenance, turnover that we compare the historicals to of the property. So let's say benchmark historical or benchmark for rent growth is typically 3% in our industry. It's not getting too aggressive, especially in some of our markets where there is a lot of building going on. There's these student housing little towns like College Station, Texas. It's home to Texas A&M. 
they got thousands and thousands of new beds that were delivered there over the last two or three years. And so underwriting 3% rent growth there in perpetuity may have been a mistake a couple of years ago. Understanding the market dynamics and the supply and demand metrics of a market, but now a lot of that supply has been absorbed and the market is starting to bounce back. Understanding that and then looking at concessions and making sure you're studying the market survey to see how the market's actually doing. It could be 100% occupied the market, but they're giving away tons of concessions to get there. So it's just making sure you pay attention to all the details of the deal as well as the market in general. And where the market is going. And then, yeah, where's the market going? What's the supply demand metrics? Is in our case, is the school growing? If I'm doing deals for myself, buying deals, I buy in Phoenix. So we're in a really good economy. We have good job growth. We developments. There's a lot of units coming online, but there's a shortage of housing in Phoenix. I'm comfortable with my rent growth assumptions and what I think I can do with the property. Are there any tools or software that have helped you in underwriting or that you would recommend to other people? No, I don't use like any software for underwriting. We have a financial model that was built by some wise person 10 years ago, <laughs> a lot smarter than me. I just plug it into my model, but there's definitely courses you can take like that teach under, I think like CCIM has courses that teaches underwriting. Probably ULI has some webcasts that teach underwriting. I would just sign up for that stuff and learn as much as you can, because you're not going to most likely be put in a situation like I am where you're working for a broker and getting the opportunity to underwrite deals. If you don't have that opportunity, you got to create it. And that's taking initiative and finding training courses that will teach you that. And then from there, finding deals to underwrite in your market or wherever and just start practicing. That's what I did. Even though I had my opportunity, I still practice on my own time to really learn more about it. Perfect that skill. Yeah, absolutely. What are three things that you feel like have helped you in your journey as a real estate investor and where you see yourself going? Whether it be like mindset shifts, getting past roadblocks, limited beliefs, or quotes, or even being able to tap to certain mentors and resources? Yeah, I got lots of answers for that. I'll break it down into three. Three headings, three subjects, and then I got some points underneath that. It's hard to really summarize, but for the first and foremost is finding that degree in real estate at ASU set me on my path, getting the job at Marcus the Miller job. And then the biggest thing was taking the job in brokerage because I learned everything, whether it was creating the marketing materials, doing the marketing of the asset, create, doing market surveys, which is huge when you're analyzing a deal. I want to know what the other properties are doing around me. I learned how to underwrite these large institutional deals, understanding equity multiples, waterfalls, IRRs, cash on cash, cap terminal cap rates. What is terminal cap rate? If you don't terminal cap rate or exit cap rate is okay. Let's say we're selling after the renovation, then what the cap rate will be after you increase the value. Sort of. Let's say we're selling a deal at a five cap. Mm-hmm. It's a non-value add deal, but we're selling it at a five cap. It's a stabilized deal. The terminal cap rate will be, I mean, what I've seen institutions do is they underwrite 50 bips, 50 to 75 bips higher than the going in cap rate. So the going in cap rate is what they're buying it at. The terminal or exit is what they use to find the value. Let's say if they want to sell in year five, they're basing the value on terminal cap rate. So that's the NOI, obviously divided by the cap rate is the value of year five. So if you're buying a deal at a five cap, it's probably not the smartest idea to use a five cap in year five to find the value of what you can sell that. So there's usually a spread of 50 to 75 bips. Maybe some conservative people are at 100 or higher. It's, everyone's different, but from what I've seen, it's 50 to 75. For me, 
on value add deals like Phoenix, the rents are so low. I'm paying in some cases a four cap for 1960s products, but I don't look at value add deals on a cap rate basis. I look at it as on a price per unit basis. What am I paying per unit? And what can I do to the property after renovations to rents? Where can I get rents to? And what will my cash on cash be over a five or seven year period? What will my equity multiple be when I sell in five or seven years? And I determine, I look at market cap rates today, and then I'll add 50 or 75 bips to that for the terminal cap rate. Because obviously I don't want to, I'm not going to add 50 or 75 bips to a four cap on products. Learning how the largest investors in the world invest in deals, sell deals, how they negotiate, what they look for. Being on these conference calls, that's been huge. I've learned how to develop relationships by watching my boss. He is one of the best people I've ever seen develop relationships. He has relationships with all the CEOs of these companies, executives. He takes them out to dinner. He just does really cool things and he, he establishes a good rapport with these investors. So that's been huge. Learned how to raise capital and learned about capital markets as well in my job. So debt yields, loan constants, debt coverage ratio, all the things I need to look for and analyze when I'm looking at a deal. So that's number one, kind of a long-winded answer, but there's just so much that I can tell you. The second thing for me was learning to develop the right relationships. So that's with partners, having the right dynamic with my partner or partners. My weaknesses are offset by their strengths. On my first deal I bought, I raised capital on in 2019. I had a partner, he was retired. He was an executive at a large tech company, smart guy, very well off. And the partnership started off good. I couldn't qualify for a loan because my net worth wasn't where it needed to be. And he already had track record in multifamily and a little 10 to 20 unit space. So I knew he would be able to get the loan. So I partnered with him. I found it. I, I found the deal. I raised the capital or most of the capital. I found the property manager, the general contractor. I put everything together. Everything started off good. And then eventually he put on his executive hat and tried to be my boss. That didn't work for me. I don't want my partner to think that they're my boss or they're the lead partner. It's a 50-50 dynamic just wasn't working for me. So that's important because as I transition out of my yep. job into this business full time, I want to have the right people around me. I'm going to be spending a lot of time with them. I'm going to be doing, dealing with a lot of money. And it's important that our personalities mesh well that we have a symbiotic relationship. And so that was a good learning lesson. And I found new partners, that dynamic that works. So finding the right investors, whether from the cost of capital, I got it to, they're easy to work with and they're not trying to micromanage the deal. I don't want somebody to come in and try and, and you know micromanage our deal. They're not the expert. I'm a fiduciary to them and I take it very seriously. And my knowledge, I have a lot of experience. So don't want somebody to try and micromanage a deal. Developing relationships with banks, another key aspect for me. And I decided in 2015, I wanted to develop a relationship with a local bank. I found the guy in there that was vice president. He was younger and I developed a really good relationship with him. So he's now the number two guy at the bank and he's on the investment committee, he approves the deals. So that helps with my certainty of execution when I submit offers, because he's going to tell me right away if he can fund the deal. Um, yeah. Like from usually the day I'll send it to him, he'll, he'll give me an answer. So that helps me buy deals as well as I don't have to submit offers with the financing contingency as well. 
So in Phoenix, that's really important because the market's so hot. If you have a financing contingency, you're not getting the deal. There's no way. I get good terms. We can close pretty quickly. That's another huge thing. And then developing relationships with brokers, getting off market deals and having an advisor for if I want to know rents or sales comps, knowing the general contractors, because that's extremely important. <laughs> knowing pricing. So when I'm looking at a deal and I find a value add deal, I can kind of estimate what the price per unit is going to be to fix them up ahead of time. So I can underwrite it and analyze it a lot quicker versus having to wait for a bid and all that stuff. And then lastly, with that, just being easy to do business with, meaning I do what I say. I'm honest, transparent. I'm not a jerk. I'm respectful mm -hmm. to the brokers. I value the relationships. So they're going to want to do deals with me. In a competitive market, if I'm not the highest bidder, but I'm easy to work with, I'm not retrading deals and I have a good track record with this broker, they're going to want to bring me more deals. I've learned that at my job. The people that are easy to work with, those are the ones we want to bring deals to. You know, staying humble in the process, having certainty of execution and, you know, just getting people to want to do business with me. And then the last thing is, like you said, talks about mindset, having a growth mindset, constantly looking to learn and grow. I read a ton of books every night. I read books on real estate, emotional intelligence, so I can master my emotions to the best of my ability. So I'm not reactive and don't make decisions based on emotions, try and stick to the facts and do my best to make a decision off of that. The economics and reading autobiographies and self-improvement books. So just constantly looking to learn and grow and enhance my mind. And then I took the intellect intellectual capital from my job and applied it to my business. So now I can do everything in a deal. I can find the deal. I underwrite the deal. I raise capital. I can create the marketing packages. I'm putting the partnerships together, dealing with the lawyer, the accountant. So now I just made it. It's hard to replace me in a partnership because I can do everything. That's something I wanted to be able to do from the onset of me wanting to do this is just being able to do everything. I'd rather not do everything and just focus on a couple areas that I am really good at and then have partners do the areas that they're really good at so we can have efficiency. But I can still do it with the help of partners and then mastering my emotions and then being accountable and learning from my mistakes. And then the last thing for me is I'm not where I want to be. I started a little bit late. I'm 40. Wish I was 30 in this position. Um, I will have that guess that you were 40. No, like I'm the Benjamin Button of real estate, man. I yeah. go backwards in age as I get older. But Younger. there's a lot of people that are where I want to be. But just making sure that... I'm not trying to keep up with them, not taking huge risks because I have capital to place because I want to buy more deals and I want to have my end goal is to have 5,000 units and I'm not even close to that, but I'm on my own path. Everybody's on their own path. I can't take risks just to try and reach my goal quicker. It's not a, a get rich quick business for me. I take it very seriously. I'm a fiduciary to people's retirement money and I want to help them grow their retirement and get to a place where they want to be. I'm reading a book right now called The Psychology of Money and just gives stories about different people and how they view money. And it talked about Berkshire Hathaway. And I told you the story when we talked a couple of days ago, how they had three partners that started Berkshire, obviously Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger. And then there was a guy named Rick, Rick Guren or something. And, and Warren Buffett said, Rick was a, he was a really smart guy. He was just as smart as me and Charlie, but Rick wanted to get rich quick. 
me and Charlie both knew we were going to be extremely wealthy over the course of our lives and we just knew it. So we just made the right decisions and didn't take huge risks. And they said, Rick started borrowing money using margin loans to invest in the stock market. And then in the seventies and the stock market crashed and Rick had to sell all his Berkshire Hathaway shares to Warren Buffett at $40 per share, whatever, super cheap. And so he got bought out of the company. And he got greedy. And that is a good lesson. It just it'll take time. Like I'll get to my goal, whether it's 10 years, five years, 20 years, it's just staying on pace and mitigating risk as much as possible and not letting me take over. So, yeah, that's good. So how can people get in contact with you if they have something that stood out to them from this interview, or they want to know what you're up to, what you're doing? Absolutely. I raised capital in 2019 on a deal. My first deal I raised capital on the market took off here in Phoenix and we were able to sell that deal about a month ago. And that deal produced a 2.5 equity multiple. So investors were able to double their money in two years, which that was a lot of luck from the market appreciation but I had a solid business plan going in. So I'm always looking to raise more capital. I would never say I can match, produce those results again in two years, but that was a great deal. But yeah, you can get a hold of me. My email address is jdogbrito, B-R-I-T-T-O at madisoncommunitiesaz.com. So phone number is 480-290-8005. Awesome. Yeah, hey. I, I love real estate, man. This is what I was born to do. Uh, yeah. I don't even feel like I'm working when I'm putting deals together. It's just, it's fun. So for your first episode, this was natural for you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I really appreciate your time and allowing me to come on, man. That's really, really cool. Thank you yeah. so much.